The podcast you are about to listen to contains spoilers for the latest episode of American Gods. If you haven't watched the episode yet, we suggest you pause this show until you have. Welcome to Backstage, a podcast by The Shift about the television series American Gods. I'm Brian Huff. And I'm Tori Briggs. And we'll be your hosts on this journey through American mythology. On today's show, episode one, The Bone Orchard. So we're not going to bore you with a recap of the show you just watched, as television podcasts tend to like to do, because if you haven't watched the show, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. It seems logical enough, I think. Brian, you've watched it, right? No, I actually haven't. That, that, that's the whole, <laughs> that's the gimmick of this show, is I've read the book, but I'm not going to watch the television show. <laughs> and you haven't yeah, read the right. book, but you're going to watch the show, and then we're going to try to piece together a podcast. No, everybody uh, talking now and listening now has seen the show. So we should be good as far as that's concerned. Good. So each episode, we're going to focus on one centralized theme. Well, at least until the producers decide to interweave like 10 themes and blow this whole idea up. But starting at least with this episode, we're going to focus on one centralized theme. And I think the most obvious one to start with and really where it seems that the producers and the writers of the show have started is with the theme of faith. I mean... You kind of wear that on your sleeve when you entitle a show American Gods and your show is about gods. And we kind of leap headfirst into that theme from the very second the show starts with the scene with the Vikings landing in America and immediately having their faith in their God tested as they try to escape back to their world um, from a hostile, inhospitable land full of apparently uh, people that can fire a crap ton of arrows at the same time. Yeah, like a thousand arrows in less than a second. It was like a 300 level style, like overkill, right? Like that just like, you know, a hundred's not enough. Let's do a thousand. It's an amazing visual scene, but it was just... <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they were going for kind of a more jokey approach when that happened. It, it was kind of a more, it was a little more kind of funny way to display that. Yes, like they're angry. The natives are restless, so to speak. Um, Get out of here. Yeah. So we immediately jump straight into the theme of faith and how the Vikings have to try to win over the faith of their God. And they make a very big point, as they will in a lot of these coming to America vignettes that will be at the beginning of most of this season's episodes, which center around how the gods got from their native land to America. And this is the story of how this particular God, the God of War, and not this isn't really a huge spoiler, but they're referring to Odin and how Odin got to America. And in this particular story, being the god of war, these Vikings who are stranded have to demonstrate their warlike abilities as a form of worship to Odin in order to turn his eye or his presence to the uh, land of America. Yeah, it's kind of how they display their faith as like the god of war they display their faith in really violent and brutal ways. Yes. And as it, as is the case with most like civilizations and people, you display your faith um, most outwardly and openly in times of need. And these Vikings needed to get off that island. Yes. And what is very, very stark is the amount of not just worship and sacrifice, but self-sacrifice um, that they went through in order to appease their god first, obviously, with the stabbing out of their eye, which is very symbolic for those of you that are familiar with the story and the the mythos around the god Odin. Um, then going as far as sacrificing one of their own, and not just one of their own, but they made a purposeful point of the leader of the Vikings selecting a very strong representative of their people and not just any old person. Yeah, the leader was was selective. He 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 turned the first person away, the first offering away, and, and they brought a better offering, and that's the one he chose. Yeah, a very large, tall, bulky man who was then burned to death uh, unceremoniously. Screaming. 
Yes, screaming in, in a very horrible way, which got them a little bit of favor, right? We saw the wind kind of move the sand a little, this device that they were using. Just a little bit, yep. And then they said, okay, you know what? What will really appease Odin but the bloodiest game of shirts versus skins that we can think up? <laughs> and man, was it bloody. But I, I I, thought that exact thing, shirts versus skins, and it, it reminded me back playing like schoolyard basketball and never being on the, wanting to be on the skins team because I'm just chubby and flabby never wanted to be that guy and to be fair on the on the skins team the one dude did get impaled through the neck with a uh, sword from a <laughs> severed arm yeah, probably the it, worst way you could case, go i never would have been the guy that would have been sacrificed i maybe i would have stood a chance in the battle <laughs> exactly and then they, they eventually win the favor of their god the wind returns they're able to leave the land and they take back stories of of what they encountered on that land themselves um, and we're led to believe maybe that some of the embellishment, like that thousand arrows, the the first guy who stepped foot um, in, you know, as they were entering the woods, took that maybe that may be a bit of an embellishment, right? Because that's kind of a theme in general. It's like how the how the stories of the gods and the lands kind of take shape through the people. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like you take like we're introduced to this scene by the narrator and you think like as stories are passed on from generation to generation embellishments happen and things get a little more dramatic over time exactly and it's like oh you know one guy took an arrow to the knee you know and (laughs) and then like next thing you know it's like a thousand arrows impaled him and he died instantly it's a very interesting take and kind of sets the tone in general for the show right we get this theme of faith throughout the episode we we get this um extreme violence which the show both begins and ends with these just massively graphic scenes of violence and we get this idea that people are willing to kind of do anything for their faith and then we are instantly given contrast to that when we get to the prison scene and of course we're introduced to shadow moon and uh shadow's not so low-key friend who has kind of joined him and uh, we we get some some dialogue between the two of them that kind of basically hits us over the head with the idea that Shadow doesn't believe in a whole lot of things that he that aren't of this world. Yeah, I mean, you get the feeling that he he could be an atheist. The only thing he really believes in is this sense of dread that something bad is going to happen to him. Yep, and even he says that feels unnatural to him, right? Because he says, "I feel like there's a fucking axe hanging over." And then his friend, who plays a very interesting role, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but his friend says, and he seems to take some stock in that fact. And he just feels like there's this thing holding him back, this this like existential dread almost that's kind of looming over him. And that yeah, he calls moment, it he, he, ca- he literally calls it an axe. Yeah. And so we, we we're that's how we're introduced to him. And he's kind of this this faithless person who only believes in the realities, believes, he says, the things that he can see. And then we begin almost instantaneously to start breaking down this man who who feels like he's got this axe hanging over his head, who does not have a whole lot of faith in things. We get a brief introduction via a phone call to his wife, Laura Moon, and he has a little flashbacky type scene in which he kind of sees her and has a conversation with her as she like is in the ceiling of the the jail cell. Yeah, his dream sequence is is pretty bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's kind of weird. And then we're like snapped back to reality and he goes into the warden and finds out that his wife has died and he gets kind of like a little bit of a good news bad news thing. It's like one of them good news bad news jokes in there. Good news we're letting you out early. Bad news your wife's dead. Yeah. Yeah, like I th- those dreams that dream sequence is like it's sort of plays into the premonition he's feeling that something bad is going to happen. And then we see his world shattered as he finds out that his wife has died in this accident and he's, he's getting out early. Yes. So he, he, he goes through this thing and he goes to the airport and that's when we're introduced to, to what I think are two important concepts. The one is probably a little bit more subtle. So his cellmate in prison He's it appears via some sort of weird, like overlaid flashback in the airport in which he's remembering a scene in which he basically says, Do not piss off those bitches in airports. It's referring to the, the uh, gate agents and, and yeah, they're building little wooden houses and he's recounting the story of, uh, of a, 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 an inmate that he knew previously that, pissed off this lady and had to come back to prison yes and how if he doesn't do that you know that he basically needs to resist this urge and there's this funny exchange where 
where Shadows kind of like comes up with this big, you know, wordy explanation for the lesson that this guy's trying to teach him. And he's like, no, just don't piss off bitches at airports. <laughs> yeah, it's as simple as that. It's like that that guy, I can't tell if he's this wise sage or just some kooky weirdo that happened to give Shadow some good advice. Well, and that's the part that I'm interested to see. Like, is this going to be a recurring theme? Is this guy some sort of twisted weird representation of a guardian angel or a conscience or something of that nature that is going to be along with shadow throughout the series because it's very much set up that way because shadow runs across a scenario where he could potentially get into this argument with his gate agent and he remembers this and he's like okay you know what how much for a flight um the second person that we are introduced to the most pivotal character in the entire series that is just brilliantly and i have to you know i have to say this right now I am a massive Ian McShane fan. He's my spirit animal. <laughs> I love that man to death and all of his acting. And he is on fire in 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 this this episode in particular. Hopefully it's like this throughout the whole series. But man, he he is good in yeah, this role. And, and he immediately nails that like con man that he's supposed to be, right? Like it, the the whole concept of Wednesday is that he's this con man that can always get his way. And that's effectively, you know, we get the scene representative of him doing that in order to get a first class flight onto the plane. Now, this brings us kind of to the next part of this whole theme of faith, because they're having this discussion on the plane. This is the first time Shadow has ever flown. And Ian McShane is Wednesday launches into this monologue about what keeps the plane in the air. Yeah, I love how how they kind of set the stage for the whole episode and perhaps the whole series with this monologue. He talks about how whether it's either the faith of the people on the plane just believing that the plane is going to fly versus Newton and the laws of physics actually keeping the plane in the air. And it, it, one or the, the other is the driving force that keeps everybody from from dying. And again, it catches Shadow at this vulnerable moment, right? Like where the, here's this man who whose wife has died. His whole world has been completely flipped upside down. He thought he was getting out of prison and he was going to be with his wife. Instead, he gets out of prison and he has no wife. And now his faith is starting to be tested in this subtle way, right? Where just the suggestion by Wednesday that, hey, you know, things may not be the way that you see them being maybe this plane is not really in the air because of science, but is in the air because everybody on the plane believes it to be in the air. And that just kind of, you know, shadows already rattled. He's not, he's, there's a storm going on. He's not feeling super confident in, in the plane's ability to stay in the air. And it, it certainly unnerves him if nothing else. Yeah. And I think not only that, um, I think Mr. Wednesday seems to know just a little bit too much about shadow. And I think that's also unnerving to him. Yes, yes. And th there's also this interesting, and, and this is a little inside the baseball, I guess is the best way of putting it. But, you know, obviously we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the Vikings kind of poking their eye out. Or they all poke their right eye out. And Wednesday makes this interesting reference where he talks about how he can see things. And, you know, in response to Shadow wondering how he knows that he's an ex-con, and makes a comment about, well, at least with, you know, one eye and points to his left eye being the opposite of the eye that was poked out by the Vikings. So it's an it interesting says, kind even of... Even though I have one eye, basically, I see a lot with the one that I have. Yeah, so a, a, a bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink to the beginning of the show. The Vikings like, poking their eyes out. Exactly. So, you know, just a little subtle reference. It's interesting to be caught. But so... That, that kind of gives us our first taste into that whole faith concept. And then we're fast forwarded to the plane is landed. Shadow slept through and he goes on this little car ride. And yeah, we he slept end through first class, man. I know he slept through first class. Like I feel the guy's pain. Like that's just. Yeah, everything's going class. wrong for that guy so far. Yeah. So he gets in a rental car. He finds out that they've made an emergency stop and he needs to get in to Eagle Point so that he can go to his wife's funeral and he kind of rents a car and he goes off. And the first act, so to speak, is ended with this scene with him kind of looking out over, you know, whatever you want to call it, middle America. There's nothing. and He's just kind of screaming. And then we're launched into the second of the episodes coming to America vignette things where we're introduced to Bill Quist. Now, this is a scene 
for anybody who's read the book has just been kind of like, how are they going to do this? Are they going to do yeah, this? What actually, is this Brian, going to I can't look wait like? to hear you describe this scene. <laughs> so what you end up with is obviously this very visually, orally powerful scene introducing you to this woman, Bilquis, who appears to be some sort of escort or prostitute or just, you know, I guess whatever the reverse of a womanizer yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we don't necessarily know that to be the case. Like it, it, it's set up in a way that these two just meet in an online date. Yes. They've, they've met online via something like Tinder or match or something. Yeah, of really, that nature. it's a cautionary tale in online dating. Yes. Yes. For those of you who are swiping to the right a lot in Tinder, maybe just be a little more discerning. Just a, just a little <laughs> yeah. bit more because nobody wants this to happen to them, but it's nobody. A, it's a very powerful scene. It, it is a, is the keystone scene, I think, for people who love the series. Like, it's that first time where you went, holy crap, what have I gotten myself into? And it's one that if I were to describe it to you, you would view potentially as very, like, provocative, very sexual, very, you know, premium TV-esque, right? Very HBO, Showtime stars, like Shock Factor. And I don't want to discount the fact that there is a ton of Shock Factor here, but it's done in a very interesting way. The point that they are trying to get across here is... She is a woman who needs to be worshipped to feel powerful, and she's with this man who clearly is just, you know, it starts off as just he's just happy to be with her. He makes the comment as they're getting into bed together that you're the sexiest goddamn thing I've ever gotten to touch for free. Yeah, I think he feels like he just like struck the mother load, right? He's so happy to to have landed in the situation and that she actually thinks he's attractive and wants to be with him. Yep. Yep. And she in turn kind of feels the same way. She makes the comment to him. She like pauses and looks at him and says, not what I once was. You're perfect. You don't think I'm spent. You know, just kind of like, like you would almost yeah, expect. The woman I used to be, I think she says as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's like, you know, like you would imagine if you were dating in your thirties and forties, just kind of like, you know, Oh, I've been through a divorce and my life has changed and I've had children or whatever the case may be. It's something that a lot of people who date at that age, male or female can kind of relate to. So it starts as that, but then very, very quickly snowballs into something else. And it's very clear as soon as the interaction in bed starts that Billquist is 100% in control of the situation. Yeah, and there's definitely something else afoot here. Like, this is one of the most supernatural scenes that that we see. And and really, coming from someone who hasn't read the book, it seemed completely over the top, and I didn't really get the point of it after watching it the first time. No, and it's very interesting because up until this point, you have not seen anything super fantastical that necessarily makes you go, oh, crap. You know, shit's hit the fan now, right? We haven't really gotten to that point. We're, we're kind of pseudo-seeing things through the world of Shadow, and Shadow's looking at things skeptically, and all we really have to test his faith at this point, or his, you know, test this his This is actually faith, a scene really. that's completely apart from Shadow's storyline so far. Exactly. So they're able to dabble a bit more in the fantastical. So if you take yourself out of Shadow's shoes, and you're just like, as the viewer even, this is the first time the viewer has been presented with this this thing that goes, oh, I don't know how to explain this away. I don't know how a woman absorbs a man in through her vagina during the act of yeah, sex. Yeah, I mean, it's basically uh, birth in reverse, right? That's the only way I could think of describing it. Yeah, he's he has given himself wholly, and, she, and he says this at, during the dialogue, during the scene, that he's, oh, my money, my body, my life, and, you know, she... And that's his way of worshiping, and it turns into this very religious feeling, spiritual feeling situation more so than a sexual it's situation. some type of religious sacrifice right just not in, in in the way that we saw with the vikings correct correct it's a different world right you know when we speak and, and this will be something that i'll say a lot on the show when we are talking religious we are not talking religious as you think about it today right not the going to church kind of doing thing we're talking about deities from hundreds thousands of years ago and how they were worshipped and this is a very sexual type of worship in which the woman is very much in power and he's giving himself over to her. And we're led to believe, while nothing has said explicitly, we're led to believe as if the sacrifice makes her feel more of the woman she used to be, a little less spent, the way that that last you know, shot of her is shot where, and you even said this when we were talking in the pre-show, where some people might view it and go, huh, she's sexually satisfied, right? But there's also this like a little bit of a glow and her face looks a little bit smoother and, you know, just to the point like where maybe it's like, she looks even like 
a little bit younger. Like she fed off the, the faith of this person. Yes, exactly. So here we're getting the first real, at least in modern times, we believe, because, you know, there's a dating site. So clearly this has to be relatively recent where we see somebody worshiping or sacrificing themselves to gain the favor of a goddess, even if they don't necessarily realize at the time that that's what's going on. And you almost, yeah, that's a good point how this is a modern take on perhaps an ancient ritual. So this God, um, Bilquist is trying to find ways in the modern world to get her power. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we're led to believe. This is just a one-off scene. She comes, she goes, <laughs> no, no pun intended. And, and that's, oh, that's all, all we're kind of left with. And you feel sorry for the man because the man is genuinely enthralled with her. He's not looking for a one night stand. He even says, you know, we don't have to do this. You know, I want to see you again. And you do yeah, feel a bit like of his sympathy. Children were actually trying to help him out, like find somebody to like meet. To, they, they were helping him out, meet somebody. Exactly. He said, you know, my children have been trying to convince me to do this. They say it's good for me. I really like you. I'd like to see you again to the point where you kind of almost feel that she's being a bit vicious and a bit maniacal in the fact that she's taking advantage of this poor man in order to gain his worship. And it leaves you feeling while she's got power you feel slightly uneasy about what just happened from the perspective of oh, the man definitely. involved. From my perspective, I felt like this is an e- like kind of an evil character. Yes, and the Tori uncomfortable meter in general during the scene was probably at its peak. <laughs> definitely at its peak. I, this is the scene that uh, makes me not want to recommend this to like acquaintances of mine because they'll they'll reach this scene and not give the rest of the show a chance at all. Yeah, which is it's interesting because there's been shows like this in the past. Uh, Black Mirror is the most obvious example that comes to mind. Where like that first episode of Black Mirror is off the wall nuts. It's just weird. It's 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 over the top, and yeah. we, we didn't continue on that series for that reason. And, and a lot of people missed out on what I think is one of the great shows on television in Black Mirror for that reason. And I'm worried that people will hear about the scene. This is a scene when you guys are at the office today and you're around the water coolers, you're hanging out with your friends, you're in Slack and you're having conversations. It's going to be about this scene. There's hands down. That's going to be the case. That was the case with the book. It's going to be the case with the show. And it's a risky from the standpoint of from a mass adoption standpoint, people going, oh, man, like, I hope this doesn't define the show in the fact that it's this weird over the top sex scene i do hope it defines the show and here is a woman taking the the lead and the power in a sexual situation but also that there is this underlying current of worship and faith and religion and what this man was willing to sacrifice and give similar to the vikings to gain the faith of this woman I think it was definitely a risk putting in the very first episode. They could have put this maybe in episode two or three once people had gotten into uh, the the series at this point and it wouldn't make them shy away so much. So it's a, it's a risk putting this something like this in the first episode for sure. Yep. But for purists, for people who love the book, it had to be there. It came very early in the book. It's coming very early in the series, and we're led to believe from the interviews leading up to the show that Bilquist is going to play a little bit larger part in the narrative of the television series than she did in the book. So it's even more important to establish her as a player early on, and that's exactly what they're trying to do right now is they're trying to establish her, and uh, Yatiti Badaki, who plays Bilquist, did just just a mind-blowing job from an acting perspective. Like That scene had to be weird and difficult to film. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine just reading this script and imagining having to do that scene seems crazy to me. Yes, this is uncomfortable. This is sexual. This is raunchy, but there's so much more to it. There's this power balance between her and this worshiper, and there's this, here's your first like real hint that, oh, crap. This is the first time the reader smacked in the face with, there's something else going on here, and it's obvious. It's no longer like, oh, I could explain that away. It's more just like, whoa, <laughs> like what just the happened? The actor that here? portrayed the gentleman um, that that was consumed by her, I, I read from Neil Neil Gaiman and Ryan Fuller, the sh- the showrunners, that they found him only two days before that scene was shot. Like they lucked out in finding him. Yeah. And he did an amazing job. He played that too. You felt sympathetic for that guy at the same time is just like, well, he kind of deserved it, but also like, eh, I don't know. If this is what he had in mind. Necessarily. I don't know if anybody deserves that, Brian. 
you don't well yeah reverse birds do seem like a like a horrible thing to put anybody through <laughs> George is like, I can't respond to that. So then we're immediately put back into Shadow's storyline. We get to what is, again, another iconic scene for people that love the books where Jack's Crocodile Bar, uh, Shadow ends that up... That bar is amazing. I the want set that for that bar. bar is amazing. Yes. Like, I don't know what kind of money they put into that, and I don't know how much it's going to be around. I know it's not around more so than that in the book, I, I, but it's just the bar with like the light of crocodile teeth is really really well done. Yeah, exactly the giant how I crocodile it. mouth that the bar takes place inside of is is just awesome. And the way they shot that uh, opening up the scene in the bar was was great. Yeah, done really well. You get the music, and you know we should talk about this, but this is not surprising because you know Fuller has worked with Brian Reitzel before. He worked with him on Hannibal. They're very, very heavy on the soundtrack. And that there was, I mean, there was maybe, what, five minutes of this entire first episode that did not have some sort of score associated with it. Yeah, I think that's going to rub people the wrong way. Like some people could say it detracts from it, but the music is amazing and it plays behind almost every scene. And it really sets the mood for each scene. It goes from foreboding and dark to happy and twangy country and light it, it does a really good job of setting the mood for each scene yep and it does an amazing job here and so we get shadow reunited with mr wednesday who is trying to bring him into his employ and then we're also introduced to the leprechaun mad sweeney who is played by pablo schreider who does an amazing amazing job pablo schreiber of of just depicting this character that people love to hate out of the book. I think people pictured him as more of an annoying type character. And here he's just got this charisma. And we're back again to that that faith testing, right? Because Schreiber's character starts doing these coin tricks. And obviously Shadow feels like he's got a decent grasp on coin tricks. We see him kind of subtly walking a coin through his fingers at the beginning yeah, of the episode. He, he, we get the idea that he definitely knows some slate of hand. Yes, yes. He does a little slate of hand trick for Wednesday and talks about getting in trouble with gambling, potentially like doing some stuff with chips and things of that nature. So we we've, we believe this is in his wheelhouse and he sees these tricks that Mad Sweeney is doing and they seem unbelievable to him. But yeah, he his first reaction is, how did, how did you do that? Exactly. And that's a key here, right? He's not saying, oh, wow, that's magical. He's viewing it as, I've seen it. And in order for me to have seen it, there must be a rational explanation. Yep. I want science or procedure or logic to tell me how that works. Yes, exactly. And that leads to this wonderful bar fight between the two of them after Mad Sweeney kind of provokes him. Um, Which I don't understand, to be honest, like what the bar fight signified or, or why Mad Sweeney, Sweeney wanted to fight him or the connection between Mad Sweeney and Mr. Wednesday. They obviously know each other, but we don't know how at this point. Yep. It, it was a little confusing. The characters were great to watch, but I was left wondering, like, how does the leprechaun even play into all of this? Right. And there could be a theory here. My theory is at this point that there's a couple things going on. One, you have to believe that he's a leprechaun, right? You know, there's a bit of a jokey this interaction. Is like rainbows and pots of goals, leprechaun. Well, no, and he makes a funny comment. Do you? I'm a leprechaun. Can't you look tall for a leprechaun? That's a stereotype. Represents a very narrow view of the world. Again, it goes back to that that thing we talked about at the beginning of the show with the arrows. Not every story is really true, right? It's it's the representation of the story over time. And again, how did the leprechauns, you know, maybe the leprechauns aren't these wee little men chasing pots of gold. They're really tall bar brawlers who are really good at sleight of hand. <laughs> yeah, it makes you think like, if you were to see these gods in person, they're not going to be exactly what you thought they were from the books and the stories and, exactly. and your religion, perhaps. Yes, and, and my and my theory my, my wonder here is there's some a lot of commentary there's that whole little bit that mad sweeney says where he's like the boy now you're fighting for the joy of it for the sheer unholy fucking delight of it like he's feeding off the fact that shadow is starting to get into this fight and he's really kind of enjoying it uh, and okay. like he's feeding so off Matt that Sweeney energy as another one of the gods this is his form of power is provoking a fight yeah there's that person. animal that animalistic emotion that man like you know gets off Just on for that the like sheer joy fight or fight response you know 
And he says, you know, there's like the sheer fucking love of it. You know, he's just, he's clearly into it. He's clearly in, liking it. And he's feeding off the fact that Shadow likes it as well. Yeah, but if Shadow is, is actually fighting some deity, he, he holds his own pretty well. I'm just going to say that. Oh, for, he's a badass. He's been lifting at the prison, man. That's what, that's what yeah, prison does to you. Yeah, pumping a lot of iron at the prison. So, so the end result of all this is now Shadow finds himself under the employ of Mr. Wednesday, which was something that it seemed like he was very much against. Um, he apparently was taught how to do the trick, but he was so drunk that he can't remember it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's funny. Which I think has something to do with that honeymead shots that he took. Like there was clearly something more around those honeymead shots than just like there were mead, right? Like, yeah, they, they, the, the show made a point of him asking what's in these and a point of those taking those shots sim- symbolize their agreement in shadow working for Mr. Wednesday. So there was something there, obviously. Yes, exactly. So he's now in the back of the car under Mr. Wednesday's employee. Not just any car. That's a sweet Cadillac. It is a sweet Cadillac. Like what did he call him? Betty? Betty is the car's <laughs> Something name. I can't remember, but that, that is, <laughs> it's an awesome car. Yes. He's down with he Betty. Dumped so, the old Nissan. Nope. No ditch the rental car on his way which makes the question like is that dude gonna lose his deposit on that rental car like yeah what, what happens there there, there was there was no closure i need a spin closure off. we need a spinoff about the rental car and the adventures <laughs> yeah. that it goes on It'd be like a pixar film or something. fan theories about the rental car what happened that that, that, <laughs> that sweeney Versa takes it and like that, rolls that off was. into the world <laughs> we have the adventures <laughs> of mad sweeney and shadow's rental car so we we now get to kind of the the crux the the what I would say the rock bottom of Shadow's life the episode why we're here at this point which is to go to the funeral the death of his wife Laura he he knows that she has died he and he the, also he also found out that his friend died right yes he knows that his friend died that was one of the revelations is good so that was one of the revelations that he had when he talked to Wednesday where Wednesday said. Given Robbie's condition, you probably don't have a job. And he's like, what do you mean? And he shows him the obituary where Robbie died as well. Yeah, so Shadow right now like has no he has no connections to the outside world um, coming out of prison. There's nothing left for him. Nope, but he's still not at rock bottom until he walks into the funeral, stands next to Audrey, who is the wife of Robbie, which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this. I just wanted to make a point, but I believe that's Dane Cook's picture in the newspaper. Of are you Robbie. serious? No, yes. I, I did not notice that. Yes, I believe oh, that man. is Dane nice Cook. Tease. That, 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 that's that's funny. <laughs> but anyway, so he he stands next to Audrey, who's played by Betty Gilpin, and she does a great job, by the way. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second because that is yeah. Whew, she earned her paycheck on this one, but she goes. By the way, do you? It's like she she's talking to him, and she's like clearly bitter. She's clearly upset, and then she lays it on him that they were cheating, that Robbie and um. Laura were cheating on the both of them with each other, and they were literally in the act of cheating when they died. Yeah, he 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 did not put that together that um, his wife was cheating with his best friend, and they died in the same car accident. And when, and when I initially watched it, I didn't catch in the obituary that uh, they died together. I actually I actually thought that it was just really bad luck that his wife and his best friend actually crashed into each other and died. Right, well, and remember, he could have also theoretically, because she knew that Robbie was picking her up from the phone call Yeah, they were planning the a prison. surprise party. Yes, so even if he knew that they were in the same car together, it would reason to him, oh, well, they were going off to, he goes, it's horrible, but they were going off to, cele- to plan the celebration for my return, and they died in a car accident. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, while giving fellatio. And then it all kind of, you know, that's when he oh, hit rock bottom. That's when it was kind of over for him. And we and we're, we're taken to the scene in a, the cemetery. And this is where Audrey Betty Gilpin just like rips that screen apart for like 10 minutes straight where they have the yeah, scene. Yeah, just a drunken tirade. And yeah. really, if if uh mr wednesday or mad sweeney like all these fantastical kind of things that have been going on just a little bit supernatural a little bit magical and if there was just like an inkling of faith that shadow had up at that point i think she kind of rips that all away from him she does and there's a lot of to unpack in this conversation she's talking about how you gain no closure from the dead which is super foreshadowy it's not super spoilerish if you've watched the trailer you probably know what she's referring to and why that's that's kind of um, a bit too foreshadowy, but she talks about how there's no closure from the dead. She talks about how there's no life after death. 
Uh, she makes the hilarious comment. I think someone might have actually said she's in a better place. She's in Parkview Cemetery. Target would be more interesting than here. If there isn't some kind of life after death, I'm going to be so pissed. She she takes the, the completely literal approach like that. Uh, that Lord, no, she's just here at the cemetery. Target would be better than this for yeah. crying out loud. Yeah, so any like supernatural beliefs or anything that may have like started to, you know, sink into him from these weird interactions he's had with Wednesday and Mad Sweeney are just kind of ripped away from him again. So you have both just the last shred of humanity and and faith that he might have just in life is just taken away from him. And do you believe that the reset button may have been hit on his ability to believe in things because you're like, "Oh, man, you know, after that Mad Sweeney interaction, he clearly thinks maybe something else bigger is going on. Now he's just like kind of back to reality. And she, you know, she talks about getting closure. There is very, very tense, awkward scene. You get a little she wants bit of, to get, she wants to get back at her husband and Laura. Yep. 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 They, she tries to have sex with him there, right there in the cemetery where they can watch. And, you know, basically you get a lot of character building here because shadow gets to kind of, you know, show that he's a stand-up guy and that he's not going to bring himself down to that level, but you also just, he's he's downtrodden. He's he's just kind of given up on everything. And it's important because even though they may have theoretically hit that reset button on, on his belief, I think you also, and it's often said about faith and religion, that sometimes you need to be stripped down to the bare bones before you can be built up to believe. And I feel like yeah, this they, is they, a very they, big representation. It's often said that there's darkness before the light. Yes. Right? And, and this very much talks to that, right? In fact, almost explicitly, a little bit maybe too on the nose, but he's walking down a street after the scene with, and there's these street lights that are running the length of the road that he's just walking down the middle of, and then they all go dark. Yeah, that's that's the darkness. He's he's at the bottom of the barrel here in despair, walking alone. We we know he's broke. He has nothing. His family's gone, and he's just walking down this dark street. Yep. And to your point, from the darkness breeds the light. He immediately is thrown into the most direct fantastical situation that you can imagine when he meets Technical Boy, which yeah, from, is like this is the most uh, magical thing that's happened to him so far. From, from from shadows, if we take shadows' point of view, this is the craziest thing so far for him. Exactly. Now it's still hard to tell exactly what he's perceiving as reality and what he isn't when he meets Bruce Langley's character, because he he kind of wanders off. He hears this noise, and it appears, I guess, that all the light had been sucked into this VR like face hugger looking thing that attaches yeah. to his head, which is clearly weird. But then he's transported into this virtual reality in which he is interacting with Technical Boy and he's being questioned about his relationship and and the plans of Mr. Wednesday. So it's clear that there's some interaction there. But here we are taking him at his lowest, at his his bottom point where everything's stripped bare and then thrown headfirst into the first situation that he's going to have a real, real hard time questioning. Yeah, uh, as, as I think about it, though, he, he could also explain away this in his mind to an extent, right? Because these are VR goggles or glasses that attach themselves to his head. Right. So he, he could think to himself, like, this isn't real. Um, but that kind of blows up uh, at the end of as that scene ends and the faceless henchmen are beating the snot out of him. That's real. Yeah, and it appears to us to be real because there's that ejection from the, I guess, a limousine is what it's supposed to be. There's this ejection from the limousine, and then he's off with these faceless goons, which I thought was a great like nod to the internet trolls, you know, the, yeah, the Twitter mean, it, eggs it, of like the world. Face, I think it represents faceless trolls on the internet, these faceless, faceless people that just punch you, bring yeah, you down. Exactly. So he's ejected into what we think is of the real world again, where he's beat up by these goons. The goons look a little bit more realistic. If you notice that, there's a definite stylistic difference between how they're represented in the limo and how they're represented in that world or the what we believe to be the real world in which they are yeah, kicking like and pummeling him. Their jumpsuits look m much more like Star Trek actual jumpsuits than they did like the shiny things in uh, the virtual world. Exactly. So, you know, Technical Boy doesn't get the answer that he expects. He ejects him into what we believe is the real world in which he's beat and pummeled and then hung. And this is something... We haven't talked a lot about this, but this has been a, a bit of an odd 
theme throughout the episode. It's first shown where he's in the prison yard and his, his companion, his cellmate, kind of points over to these thugs over to the side and they're holding like this little noose and taunting him with it. Uh, the second representation of the noose is when he goes into, and again, we haven't talked about much about this, but when he goes into the bone orchard, which is what this episode is titled after these these weird... And a noose, a noose drops down from the tree. Exactly. These weird existential visions that he's having. Um, he keeps and having these visions. Even when he's leaving the prison, as he's walking by, those same thugs, you know, make the motion of like something around his neck. Yeah, yeah. He does like... Like some people have interpreted it as the guy pulling back to punch, but it does kind of look like, you know, when you pull a noose up around, you know, that kind of like, yeah, like you're, you're signifying like a noose around your neck and, uh, and you're being strung up. Exactly. So we get these multiple allusions to him being hung or lynched. And then the episode ends with him being lynched by these faceless trolls that, um, technical boy has unleashed upon him for not giving him the goods on Wednesday and then we're bookend. The episode is perfectly bookended with another massively violent exploding blood scene in which he's seemingly cut loose from the noose and all of these trolls have been vanquished in a very, very bloody way, including one that looks like it just gets split from uh, head to crotch down the but center. But it's not obvious what is happening to them. Like It's like their, their bodies are exploding, but we don't know who's there helping him or what exactly happened other than he falls down from the noose and all those henchmen are dead. Yep. Yep. So the that's rain kind of looks amazing, though. It's another one of those. I don't know if it's a like a practical effect or what, but the rain in that scene looks amazing. Yeah, they've done. I mean, we could talk a bit about that too. It's just how kind of the the visual presence and how that that lends itself to the episode. And it's very like he's sitting there and you've got this rain that's pouring down. And he's been kind of struggling with the noose and it looks like he's just about to give up. And that, to me, maybe is the point in which you would expect him to be like, I'm not getting out of this. If there's anything out there that can help me, please help me. And then this invisible hand, at least as far as it's represented in this episode, kind of saves him, right? We see these people So perhaps exploring. we're led to believe that he had a moment of faith in that crisis and something saves him. Could have been. There's a lot of, I mean, this goes back again to that earlier conversation with Wednesday on the plane where they talk about, we'll take this plane, for example. This 80-ton chub of metal, seat cushions, and Bloody Mary mix has no right to be soaring through the sky, but along comes Newton and explains something about the airflow over the wing creating an uplift or some such shit, none of which makes a lick of sense, but you got 82 passengers back there who believe it so fiercely the plane continues its journey safely. And what's keeping us aloft? Faith? just feels like did he activate something at that moment of absolute rock bottom and absolute desperation and he just kind of gave into something on not even really knowing it. it wasn't like an explicit action and then he was quoting you know saved i guess for lack of a better way of putting it and he's you know cut loose and all of these things just like explode in a violent bloody gore and then we're just left with that scene. There's just blood and bones everywhere. And he's just kind of looking up and he has no idea what's happened yet. Clearly, we'll probably get some indication of that in the next episode. But it's 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 very interesting because it feels like this first whole episode was just to kind of set the path for us, right? To kind of set the tone that this is, at its core, a show about faith and belief and religion. And we take this man who, in the beginning of the episode, clearly does not have a whole lot of faith in things, but he fears that something is looming. And when that's all kind of laid to bear and that premonition comes true, it all just kind of hits ahead and maybe he's found that faith that he was lacking, that belief that he was lacking at the beginning of the episode through this trying period in which his wife dies and he's attacked by the technical boy and he feels like there's nothing else to live for, but he still wants to live. Yeah, I think the the show is purposefully obtuse. It doesn't want to explain anything. I think it expects the viewer to have some faith, as it were, because I think there's a lot of people out there who haven't read the book, like myself, that ended the episode and were completely confused. Yep. It was very entertaining to watch. There were some fun scenes, some great acting, um, but really it, it ended abruptly with that, with that violent scene and we're left wondering like, 
what's the future here? What ho- what's the future for Shadow? Where did Wednesday go? Um, what's going to happen? Not not a lot of this is explained. No, and you, I mean, if you had not read the book and had you not read any of the first, you know, or sorry, if you not watched, I should say, any of the first teasers, any of the introductions to characters, you really have no idea what's going on. You don't even know some of these characters' names. You know, obviously, we refer to Technical Boy, but you don't know that that's Technical Boy if you haven't gone through some of those initial like. Yeah, he never says his characters. name exactly. He, he exactly. never says his name at all. Um, he he, you know, he just seems like Internet Trope Man vaping yeah. synthetic toad skins. Yeah, which is just weird. But you but you don't know why. And we and we really don't know fully why. Even if you know that's Technical Boy, you don't know where he comes from. You don't know what role he plays into this. What was that real? Is, is this all a vision? And I think that doubt, you know, going back to the, those, those uh, visions that he's having that we talked about, we really don't know what is reality and what isn't throughout this show because there is not, and there's a seemingly decreasing difference in exposition between the real scenes and the quote-unquote vision scenes as we go on like it's clear that the the tree and the bone orchard and the flaming buffalo with mr wednesday's voice like what does that mean we don't know yet but it is i mean you you can guess because there's obviously some some native american iconography going on with the whole concept of the totem and the thunderbird you know in the in the intro to the the tv series yeah, I guess if you think about the the news, for example, and how the show starts with a narrator writing a book, it's it's the history of the Americas, and like the the news represents a, a dark history for sure of 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 the Americas, and so does the Native American references as well. Yes, and, and you could even make the argument, though though probably a little thin at this point, that. The Native Americans were involved in the show from the get, right? Like, we know that something, maybe not human, was angered by the presence of those Vikings on that shore when all those arrows came and hit that guy. With the thousand arrows killing the Viking. That brought Odin to the shores of America. But you have to believe that, you know, the Native Americans had their own gods that they were worshiping. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that we have some Native American-esque, you know, Memory, I don't even want to call it like I guess iconography is the best term here, but like you know these these symbols of Native Americans is probably not by mistake. I don't know how it's tied together just yet. I don't think the audience really knows for sure, but it's clearly tied together in some meaningful way. They would not make a big deal about this buffalo with the flaming eyes coming out unless there was something more to it. The real problem we don't know is. One of these scenes are real. What of these scenes are not real? Clearly, there was something magical going on with Mad Sweeney. Clearly, this virtual reality scene happened in some way. We don't know where the reality begins and ends. We don't know where the battle took place versus where the conversation in the limo took place. How much of that was in virtual reality? Did he even put on the virtual reality head- headset? There's a lot that is testing the watcher's faith as much as shadow's faith is being tested. And I think it's a very interesting mechanic to get the audience involved as they're almost guessing, even if they're guessing at different things, they're almost as guessing as much as shadow's guessing about what the hell is going on right now. Exactly. I, I think it's, it's a purposeful choice on the creators and perhaps uh, the book was written in this way of keeping the reader or uh, the watcher, basically in disbelief of what's going on and not fully understanding what's going on for sure. Like you have to lean on your faith, I guess. Yep. What is real? What is not? What is, what is tricks and what is more than tricks, right? Yeah. And, and that, I think that is maybe where the whole show will go. We'll see if they continue. Obviously we, you have to believe that this belief in faith and religion is a major threat of the show, but I believe with some of the characters that we are know are still coming and ones that were created ex- explicitly for the TV show that they're going to explore that in more nuanced like and American different gods, ways. You'd think that'd be the case for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, but we know, we I already mean, know if this, if this episode's any indication, we are at least in for a crazy ride. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, this was amazing cinematic experience, uh, basic, amazing audio experience overall, just, I think a really, really well done show. I think, People maybe went into this show expecting, oh, I've read the books. This may not be as interesting to me because I know what's going on. And I've read the book, and I, and I know where some of these things are leading. 
but I also know that often like other TV shows and movies adapted from the books that they are given some liberties and they can go things in interesting directions. And we already know that the series is going to expand far beyond the borders of the original book. And that's enough to keep us kind of guessing. Things have been updated. Technical Boy is a perfect example of a character that has been updated from the original release of American Gods to make him more in tune with today's society. How much more of that will we see? We do know there's a new character called Vulcan that will be introduced later in the television series. It was not present in the book. And that will bring a unique perspective. All these things are representative of parts of American society and how they are impacted on a day-to-day basis. So I think there'll be a lot more to dig into beyond just this general theme of religion and faith and worship. But as far as setting the tone and getting people to understand what this series is overall about, I think they did a brilliant job with the hour of television that they presented so far. Yeah, it was a nutty hour of television, that's for sure. And it, it, was, it was a lot of fun to watch, a lot of fun to listen to. I, I, I for one, really liked all the, the music choices and, and the mood setting. And I think um, they also nailed, nailed it on the actor choices uh, for these characters. Ian McShane is just amazing as this character, as this con man, as this person that, you know, there is a lot going on there. He has a plan for sure, but we have no idea what that is. And neither does shadow and shadow also is he, he, he plays a perfect part of kind of not knowing what's going on, but just going with it. Um, I, I think it takes a lot in a person to just kind of go along with on this ride and with, uh, Mr. Wednesday, but again, he's at rock bottom. So what else has he got to do? Yeah. And there, there's just so much more to come here. We, we haven't even, I mean, we haven't seen Crispin Glover's character yet. We haven't seen Jillian Anderson, Kristen Chenoweth, Orlando Jones. There's so many amazing actors and actresses that have yet to make their appearance. And if what we've seen so far out of the what, five or six main actors that we've seen up to this point is any representation of the quality of acting for the rest of the show, that alone should keep people tuned in. Like I, I think. Oh, for sure. I mean, how do, as an actor, how do you turn down uh, playing the part of a god? Yeah, exactly. It's like basically why I got in this business. It's it's pretty amazing. So I'm definitely looking forward to what's coming up in the second episode. We're also looking forward to hear what you think about the show. Like, are we completely off on this? What other themes did you see in this first episode that we may have missed? You can hit us up on our Twitter account, The Shift FM, to let us know what themes did you enjoy about the show? Did you see the same things we saw? What stuff did we miss? We're interested in hearing about all of that so we can talk a bit about it on the next episode. Until then, we'll be back next week where we discuss episode two, The Secret of Spoon. Last night